Hello, Dancewell listeners. This is Ellie Kushner. Many years ago, a friend of mine would say, quitting smoking is easy. I've done it hundreds of times. I feel like I could say the same about quitting dance. I've left and returned a few times, but during this global pandemic, I haven't been dancing at all, and I find myself wondering if this time I've really quit for good. Given my past diversions from dance and the rather limited time I've spent dancing in the past five years anyhow, this present unplanned hiatus hasn't been terribly disruptive to me. However, I know that there are a lot of dancers out there who have been thrust down a rough road away from dance and are really feeling every bump and bounce of their winding journey. Leaving dance is often a complicated process. There are many, many concerns and questions that can arise. For some, managing the transition from expert to novice may be one of the complicated experiences that materializes. Having achieved a high level of skill, the mere thought of shifting focus to anything else can be scary, sad, frustrating, and discouraging, but it can also be revitalizing, promising, exciting, and thrilling. In episode 89, Quitting Dance, Transitioning from Expert to Novice, Lee Savarla shares her insights on the nuances of mastery and the value of connecting to a beginner's mind. Lee Scavarla is a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania who has worked with athletes and dancers in a variety of mental health and performance consulting settings for the past decade. Dr. Scavarla enjoys helping elite performers gain insight into themselves as people and as performers and to build coping and performance enhancement skills to meet the demands of both life and vocation. Dr. Scavarla earned a master's degree in counseling and a doctorate in sports and exercise psychology from West Virginia University, where she received training in the research, practice, and teaching of sport and exercise psychology and community counseling. She's a graduate of Bucknell University, where she majored in psychology and double minored in philosophy and dance. Dr. Scavarla is certified by the National Board of Certified Counselors and is a current member of the American Psychological Association, the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science, and the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. She currently resides in suburban Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and serves as the Associate Advisor for Minding the Gap, an organization founded in 2018 by former dancer, writer, and nonprofit development professional Kathleen McGuire Gaines. The mission of Minding the Gap is to see mental health treated with the same seriousness as physical health in dance culture. And now, let's talk about quitting dance. Buckle your seatbelts. On this episode, nutrition, life coach, dance and performance, psychological development. And today you are in for treat. Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell Podcast. Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. Hi, Lee. Thank you so much for um, doing this conversation and talking about the very challenging experience that is leaving dance. Well, good afternoon, Ellie, and thank you very much for having me. Um, I want to start just by acknowledging all the different ways that people experience quitting dance. Um, mm-hmm. 
because for some, it's really like a scheduled and precise action, a very tidy break. But for many others, it's a long and complicated process with many phases. Um, a lot of people who think they might be leaving for good actually end up, you know, exploring new relationships to dance and performing in different ways or staying mm -hmm. in the dance community in, in different ways. Um, and others, of course, just go on to completely different careers and never look back. Um, mm -hmm. And for some, it comes unexpectedly because of an injury or a mental health crisis or a lifestyle change or, uh, as we're seeing now, because of an unanticipated event like a global pandemic. So I'm just wondering if there's anything that, that you want to say about the diverse ways that um, dancers transition away from dance and into other other fields. Yeah. Well, I think the reasons that you identify in, in formulating your question, those are all reasons why people do leave um, or, or quit or, or end their career or their vocation. Um, I think the things that I would emphasize is that first, there's no right way to exit dance. Um, whether that's at the youth level, whether that's at a you know career professional level or somewhere in between. Um, some ways of exiting dance are most likely more represented than others, uh, you know, with that final bow and people bring you flowers. <laughs> um, and yet none of these exits can be exactly the same because there are no two people on the planet who are the same and therefore no two people are going to have the same exact experience um, or trajectory. So I would probably, from a 30,000 foot view, emphasize that there's no trophy that's waiting for the person who exits best. And there's no public shaming scheduled for the person who struggles the most with it. That it is very much an individualized experience. And yet, if it is helpful to think about, it is a collective experience that most people have. Um, because of course we all hope that your life expectancy is longer than your relationship to dance. Um, and so it makes sense that for the majority of people walking the planet, if at one point they danced or identified as a dancer, they, right, they kept going. And so there, there was life after that. Um, so I really like to start with kind of the, there's no right way and there's, there's no trophy. Um, I think from both a clinical perspective as well as in a performance consulting role, I try to come at it from a place of curiosity. Um, you know, if we're calling it quitting, why are we calling it quitting? Um, how can we get on the same page with that? To, to me, words matter. Um, we could call it leaving dance, being pushed out, being fired, being sick or injured, feeling burnt out, choosing to leave. I mean, I'm not a not a personal friend of Gwyneth Paltrow, who, you know, that consciously uncoupling yourself from dance. <laughs> um, are you having an awful separation, divorce from dance? Are you taking a leave of absence? Are you happily departing? Are you open to new adventures? Uh, are you reinventing yourself? Words matter to me, clearly. And I think that what we choose to use to describe our own experience in our heads and also to other people can be very validating to our emotions throughout the process. And I think it's important to be accurate, both for ourselves uh, and our logic brains, but also then how we can turn around and share our story with others. Um, 
I think that when we choose words wisely, it, it doesn't promise the absence of pain. Um, life has pain in it. Um, however, I do think it can relieve suffering uh, or the constant of having to, to edit oneself depending on the context that you're in. So I think it means that if you have the ability to do so, creating a breakup plan with dance, um, much like you, you would with a partner or a friend or a house when you're moving, kind of making sure you have some bumpers up to help you get through some of the rough patches. So um, those who know me well would say that I speak in metaphor or analogy or simile a lot of the time. And I really struggle to differentiate which one I'm actually using. I think it's metaphor. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I kind of use the metaphor of bowling, um, of, you know, when you're, when you're going through a, a life transition or a career transition or, you know, making a decision to, to part ways with something that's been a large part of your life, you know, um, putting some bumpers up, right? <laughs> Ensuring you maybe don't get a gutter ball, but also, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to get a strike. <laughs> um, but having some of those things in place, whether that is a support system of people who love and care about you, um, maybe it's something else to live for, work hard for. I think it's very important to have something to take care of. And, you know, I'm not saying everybody go have children, um, but it can be a potted plant. It can be a pet. It can be community service once a week, once a month, once a year, um, you know, in your in your local community. So I think that having having those bumpers in place to get you through the rough patches is really important. It's not going to ensure a strike. It's not going to ensure that it goes perfectly, but it might help to buffer um, some of the times that could get pretty rocky because you have these other things in place. Um, so I would I would say that as well. And then I think, it, you know, if leaving dance feels like the end of your life or the end of your calling or the end of your purpose, then it's, it really is time to reconnect with those who knew you before dance. You didn't come out dancing. Um, you know, you came out probably crying or mm -hmm. you know, breathing. Um, maybe some folks who knew you during your dance career, um, who can, you know, see who you were then and now. And, perhaps connecting with an objective third party. This doesn't have to be a therapist, um, but somebody who's kind of outside of that world or outside of your world. Um, it's not uncommon to feel lonely as you're making a big change. However, I think reducing the feeling of being alone is very important for your overall well-being. Thank you for all of that. Um, in your metaphor, I think it's a metaphor because you didn't use like or as. <laughs> Um, if I, re if I recall high school, yes, um, yeah. yeah. So like the bumpers are, the gutter balls are like those deep, um, maybe like pits of despair, the crises that can arise um, mm -hmm. when you're in a big transition. So the, mm -hmm. the little, the bumpers that, you know, you're still getting, being knocked around and it's uncomfortable. And like you said, there can be pain, but the things that will keep you from spiraling into a crisis um, is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when the going gets rough, how do you, right. If you feel like this isn't optimal performance or this isn't the ideal way you would handle it, are you able to do things to actively prevent more fires? Um, you know, for example, somebody who, um, you know, is going through a rough patch or a negative experience or an unwanted experience, you know, do they stop sleeping or stop eating? I mean, that's, that's one way to make it worse. <laughs> and yeah. so how can, you know, how can some of those bumpers be um, 
you know, being educated about the importance of sleep hygiene and your natural circadian rhythm? How can it be fueling your body? And the, the answer can't be, well, I fueled my body because it exercised a lot, but now I'm not doing that. And your body still still needs fuel and deserves fuel. Um, you know, so I think that, that those things matter as far as your day-to-day, you know, activities of daily life. Um, and then some of those, you know, higher, when, when I mean higher, you know, in terms of like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, you know, if all those basic human needs are being met, then things like social connection. I think one way that folks get in a gutter themselves is that they only form friendships with other dancers. Mm-hmm. And while that can feel incredibly validating that you've made it such that you have this very kind of insular community of people who get it, um, you know, if, if you're life expectancy again is gonna is gonna out outlast your career then there it's very important to continue to cultivate and and grow and and form relationships with people who have no idea the difference between first and third position and they really don't care whether you do all 32 fuetes or not right like they it just isn't on their radar and i think that that can help to keep things like identity in check Let's talk about identity. I mean, I should say this is a conversation that is really like the tip of the iceberg of something that is, you know, a, something complex, multifactorial, mm-hmm. uh, complicated. So we're just we're touching the tip of the iceberg here today. But um, and we're not going to do a deep dive into identity. But on the other hand, uh, we can't not talk about identity. Right. <laughs> we're sure. talking about switching sure. our dance. Um, sure. So, of course, you know, these things come up, like, who am I if I'm not a dancer or, um, yeah, let's, let's touch on this a little bit. Um, and we want to talk a bit about the idea of an identity as a person who has a very well honed, highly developed skill. Um, Sure. So, yeah, for those who weren't in our email exchange, we <laughs> we had mentioned, which is all of you, um, Lee and I talked about, yeah, sort of thinking about that component um, of a dancer's identity. Sure, sure. Well, I think that from a young age, right, like a lot of dancers are going to seek the mastery that comes with that consistent, deliberate practice that we sometimes talk about in the sports psychology, exercise psychology literature, Um you know, it makes me think <laughs> for those who are Star Wars fans, it makes like becoming the Yoda, right? <laughs> you're sort of like a Padawan learner and then you're like a Skywalker and then you get to be the Yoda, right? And you kind of seek out that mastery um, that comes with it. And, and a lot of, for me, I sometimes will think about mastery while it's certainly not equivalent in the research literature from, from an applied practice, I'll think of it sometimes as the wisdom that comes with it. And I mean the physical wisdom, but also the, organizational, organizational, excuse me, the, you know, conceptual, industrial, the, the mental stuff too, you know, and we want to think that hours at the bar and at center translate into roles and accolades and promotions and scholarships. And so I think first we have to think about competence, right? To have a sense of competence is knowing that you have the capacity, the skills, the habits to do something, um, you know, and to a reasonable extent, do it well, right? Like I have some level of competence to load a dishwasher, although my, <laughs> my spouse would argue that he has more, um, you know, and, and having a sense of competence and doing those things over and over again can lead to feelings of confidence, 
which I kind of define as um, the Jack Sparrow effect. So those who haven't seen Pirates of the Caribbean, right, it's kind of Johnny Depp's character has a swagger about him, right? Um, and I think that competence and competence can be very essential to optimal performance um, within, you know, one's vocation. And then your overall self-image or self-esteem and, you know, kind of tells us or urges us to connect with other people, share with others, reach out, try new things. Um, at the same time, being good as a specific task doesn't make you better as a human being than anybody else. And so for me, when I'm speaking to a high performer, it's interesting to listen to the ways that they use social comparisons, how they're comparing themselves to others or other people's expectations of them. And also perhaps to their younger selves, their more naive or less trained selves, or maybe some of their private logic, right? The expectations in their head that no one else put there or that they kind of took on throughout life. Um, and just kind of starting to ex explore them, right? What is it about getting to this level that makes you feel safe or untouchable or, um, you know, in control? Um, and I think there's also a sense of security in a very raw or, you know, primitive way of ensuring that if you're good at something, um, there may become some financial security from that, right? right. <laughs> that, that, which is a threat to our very survival when you're in a capitalist society. Like, right, if I, if I can dance every day, then I can, I can pay rent and I can put food on the table. So, I mean, there's, a, there's the kind of looking out for oneself at the fundamental level of, of safety and security and health, um, but then also getting praise and accolades and acceptance from others. So again, that social connectivity piece that, um, you know, contributing to the greater good and this, you know, of course, self-fulfillment. So I think we have to consider how somebody defines competency, how they define confidence, and how they use comparisons um, to kind of get to a place where they feel like this is my identity and I would push back most of the time and say it, it's not it's it can be a calling it can be a vocation it can be the thing that takes up the most rental space in your head um, however you were a human being before you were a human doing or in this case right you're a human being before you're a human dancing and so you can return to the human being um, the other thing that and then I'll <laughs> I'll shut up. Um, I, <laughs> I also think we have to consider when we're defining competency, I mean, are we using kind of the, the literal definition of it or are we looking at it from both a subjective and objective place? So for example, um, subjective feelings or kind of evidence for competency might be one's own internal beliefs, right? My belief, this podcast is going well, right? I made Ellie laugh. That's an internal belief, right? Or interpretation of the situation. Um, somebody, you know, walking onto stage and seeing that the theater is sold out, right? They might turn around and interpret, I must be good. People pay to see me dance. And while, of course, that would be a comfortable thought, it doesn't mean it's accurate. It could mean actually that, you know, they reduced ticket prices that day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, or someone's salary, which we know is not always equivalent to somebody's skill, although we would, would hope to a certain extent it is. Um, or are we being very objective, right? Is your turnout or, you know, your rotational capacity in your pelvis amazing by the standard of your medical provider or of your physical therapist? You know, is the range of motion in your foot a direct predictor of going on point? Um, so those to me, you know, those are kind of the 
the nitty gritties of when someone's talking about being a master of their craft, I mean, what are we talking about? And I, I try to individualize that, that it, it can't just be the 10,000 hours rule, which the literature has said time and time again, that it's more complicated than that. Um, so is it subjective? Is it objective? Is it both? How are we defining it? And how does it, how does it play a role in things like our confidence and our comparisons as well? I want to come back to that in a minute to understand mm-hmm. it better. Um, but I just want to go backwards to something that you said about human value, because I think like if anyone out there is listening and in the process of leaving dance, I think there is no more important starting place than like you, your worth is not your resume, right? Like I have, I have said that to people like just because they have a better resume doesn't mean they're a better person. Correct. And that has, I mean, that's, I've seen people brought to tears from that realization, you know? So I, I just want to, um, highlight that, what you said about like being a human person, your value as a human is not tied up to your, your career value. No. And I mean, I, I can be direct in terms of, of a little bit about my worldview and my theoretical approach, which is that your life had value the, the moment that you breathed air, the moment that you existed. Um, for some people, you know, the, there's a spiritual or a faith-based component to this. For some people, there's a very soulful component to it. Um, And so regardless of kind of how you come at it, it's the idea that you took up space before you stepped on a stage. Um, And so that, that space is, it's there for you. Um, And that even if you do not experience the same subjective or objective measure of success in, in that new domain or that other domain doesn't mean that you are any less loved or valuable. I just want to, tag back to the subjective versus objective um, measures. So you're saying there's different ways that we can measure our success in our field. Some of them are are subjective and some of them are truly measurable, objective uh, ways. Why is that important in this conversation? Hmm. That's a very good question. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to do it justice. Um, I think it's important from a from a clinical perspective of what is somebody telling themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And in, in what ways is that internal dialogue able to explain um, or account for maybe what's going on with one's thoughts, one's emotions, one's urges, behaviors? Um, you know, so if somebody is walking around saying, you know, I, I am the best of the best, right? That's probably leading to feelings of pride, feelings of comfort. Um, they may walk around with their chest puffed out a little bit, their head is up and, and that's contagious. And so it may tell the world, like, come talk to me. And so that may continue to open other avenues for them, both in dance and outside of dance. And yet, right, they may also not be great. <laughs> and so then for me, clinically, when there is a mismatch between one's subjective experience of dance and some of the objective measures that either, you know, a, a physiotherapist or an artistic director or um, sports medicine personnel might use, it's getting curious. Uh, I 
that's really one of my favorite words in a clinical setting is to become more curious about the match or mismatch or alignment between one's subjective experience and some of the objective measures. And that oftentimes where distress or suffering or the feeling stuck, right? I call it stuckness. I know that's not a word, but I use it as one. The stuckness comes from is sometimes that that misalignment and how how do we get those things in line? How do we how do we utilize some radical acceptance of what can and can't be, right? I will only ever be five one. No matter how much I stretch my muscles, doesn't mean I'm gonna become five six. Um, and then also how do we use our change skills and our abilities to problem solve, right? We can say, well, because I'm X height, I will never be, um, you know, I will never be promoted to soloist. Or do you find yourself a company where it is possible to be a soloist at that height? So to me, there is this continual balance of acceptance um, and change that has to come into play. So for me, there isn't an I guess to answer, to answer your question, there isn't, there isn't an end goal for me as a clinician between subjective and objective. It's exploring it with the client or the patient or the performer to have them seek better understanding of where those things came from and how they're working for or against you. Um, and what you can, right, if you are collaborating with other professionals, I mean, talking to your physical therapist about your body's capacity to keep dancing after an injury, talking to your primary sports medicine physician about, you know, a prognosis, talking to your artistic director about how many promotions are up, you know, for dis- that there are some things that can be very valuable when you're working as part of a larger system. Great. That was very helpful. Um, and seems relevant to the next question, which is sort of thinking about when we shift from being a master to being mm-hmm. a beginner, right? So a lot of people who leave dance, um, that can be a very steep decline, right? Like you're at the pinnacle of your career, you're performing on Broadway, they're, this is the highest of the highest, and now you have to go and start a new vocation and mm-hmm. be a beginner. You know, for some for some people that means going back and doing bio 101 so that they can become a PT, you know, or I have a a colleague who became a bread maker for a while, you know, getting really back to the beginning of of a new practice. How, how can that be both traumatic and exciting? Yeah, well, I think there's a difference between being a beginner and having a beginner's mind. Um, And I think that, right, there's a difference between feeling like you've mastered something or being a master, I I think, you know, there are as many reactions to this change in your relationship to your skill set as there are people, as, you know, I stated before, everyone's unique. But but I do think that there are common threads. And so, you know, many dancers are going to experience grief or loneliness or confusion or my favorite word, stuckness. Um, Summer might be surprised by the amount of relief that they feel. Um, But I think, you know, as you alluded to, Ellie, there's a set of skills that they're adjusting, they're shifting, they're pivoting, but they aren't lost. Um, You know, (laughs) that your skill set can be utilized elsewhere when your time in dance is up. Um, There are physical competencies and, you know, physical things that your body as the listener might be able to do that 
you know, lends itself to becoming a yoga teacher, to a massage therapist, to an exercise scientist, to, um, you know, working in sanitation and hygiene, to being a preschool teacher who, you know, they are exercise experts. They're on their feet all day long. Um, You know, so I think that, um, you know, your mental competencies, um, you know, discipline, routine, taking direction and feedback, exploring and being creative. I mean, graphic designers, architects, med school, law school, professional organizer. Um, I mean, the, you know, therapists, you know, to me, the skill set is simply being transferred. Um, You know, it's a floppy disk. Uh Oh, now all of your, all of your listeners born after 1990, just Googled that. Um, You know, it's, it's your USB drive, right? That you can eject. They don't don't even know what that is, Lee. They probably don't know what USB is. Young people don't even know what that is. Oh man, I'm struggling. (laughs) Okay. Right. It's a piece of software that you can take from computer to computer. Um, And that I think it's very important for us to acknowledge that and my dear friend Katie of Mining the Gap and I were talking about this the other day that in, I think it was January of 2018, the Bureau of Labor Statistics put out this number that the average person changes jobs 10 to 15 times over their lifetime. That doesn't mean that they go back and get 10 to 15 new degrees or certifications. It doesn't mean that they had to lose a skill set and then build a new one. Um, it means, right, that they they pivoted, they transferred, they modified. Um and this can be the same for you as a dancer. Um, the other piece, Ellie, that I did want to make sure that I touch on when it comes to this is <laughs> planning for the pivot, planning for the modification or the adjustment. Um, it's a question that I ask folks a lot, even those who do not want to hear it. Um, so, you know, if I have a dancer who's 12 or 13 sitting in front of me saying, you know, I want to dance at PMB, great. If that doesn't work out, what are you going to do? And I think, right, the the visceral response is, how dare you, right? How dare you crush my dream? I can do anything. I'm not saying that you can't. I don't know. I actually, you know, I'm not on the board of PNB. I'm not going to hire you. Um, It's a question that comes, again, from a place of curiosity about your human self, not just your dancer self, which is, right, how are you going to make a living or how are you going to you know, live the rest of your life. And so to me, there's a difference between worrying or doubting somebody and planning for something. So for me, worry involves a lot of rumination. There's an external locus of control, right? How am I going to be reactive to things that happen in my life? Um, It can increase our attention to our vulnerabilities or our shortcomings. Whereas planning is preparation. It's engaging your logic brain while checking in with those emotions it's creating a support system for yourself. It's looking at short and long-term plans. It's it's essentially mentally mental rehearsal of things to come, right? Um, so to me, I think it is important for folks to have a plan. And if you don't like to call it a backup plan because it makes you feel like you're constantly telling yourself that you're not going to make it, can it be like plan A.2? <laughs> can it be the thing after this thing? Um, and sometimes I, I will use myself as an example where appropriate, um, whether it's a clinical or a consulting context, as, as I shared with you, Ellie, in our, um, our pre-call comments, you know, I, I received my doctorate thinking I was going to teach and research full time. And yet once I found myself in it, 
I pivoted to A.2, which was, I don't want to teach this and research this. I want to do it. Um, and so went back and became a clinician. Um, to me, it wasn't a waste of time. The, the skills necessary to be a researcher and a teacher are still things I utilize. It's just that my title doesn't necessarily reflect it. Just like you can use things from dance and not have the word dance in your title. Um, so I think, I think planning is important. Let's talk a little bit about mastery and how it intertwines with control. I mean, I think control is just such an important word in dance. And I think it's something that the dance science literature has yet to really capture in all of Mm -hmm. its complexity because, you know, from whether you are a sports scientist or a nutritionist or a psychologist of dancers, you know that control is a very important piece of what's going on in dance. Um, So what is it like when quitting um, is not within your control? That is, you know, you're injured and you can't control, you know, the fact that this, that your last performance happened four months ago when you didn't know it was your last one, or there's a global pandemic and mm-hmm. you thought you had another couple of years in you, but now you're not sure. Sure. Can I answer your question in two parts? <laughs> of course. Okay. So I think first, you know, when you were talking about mastery and control, I just kind of wanted to go on the record that, you know, creating a mastery climate is something that we might read in like a dance teacher. It's probably a topic for another time, but there's a lot of research out there. I mean, all the way back to 1989, Epstein talked about this kind of target structures of how to create a mastery climate. Um, you know, and help dancers and other performers, um, you know, especially youth athletes, um, you know, feel that sense of internal locus of control and this, you know, kind of um, uh, internal motivation or intrinsic motivation. So I I just kind of wanted to put that out there that, you know, mastery climate slightly different than feeling like a master or experiencing some level of mastery. Um, But absolutely, Ellie, for most of us, dancers are not. Life decisions happen because of a number of inputs, mm-hmm. you know, to the one output that someone might see, which is, you know, somebody physically leaving the dance studio for the last time. And likely there wasn't one input for that output. Um, you know, there were lots of strokes to the keys for one piece of paper to be printed out. Um, so, you know, for instance, <laughs> and I apologize for anyone trying to buy a house right now, right? Sure. Choosing where to buy a house right? You're going to consider the current market. You're going to consider your abilities to secure a mortgage, your social support in the process, the balance in your bank account, your options for school districts, taxes, needs versus wants, your current living arrangement, um, right? The motives for moving. And so likewise, I think many factors influence our decision to stay in any vocation or hobby um, or extracurricular. For those who have the choice, um, you know, it's not decided for you because you are let go or fired or, or ill or, or injured. I do encourage writing. Um, I think that there's something about putting the literal words to the page so that you can see them outside of your brain. I think that that's very valuable. I encourage um, athletes and dancers to think about who gets to sit at the table when that decision gets made, whether those people are real or imagined. 
um, had a professor once who talked about, you know, holding a meeting in your mind where, you know, you have this very long, probably very antique looking, you know, oak table and you're placed at the head. Um, you know, you're the CEO, but you get to invite any other business partner that you want and, and they cast a vote. And so I find it to be very insightful as an exercise um, when I'm working as a therapist or a consultant of, you know, who who's in the room, who's not in the room, who's allowed to kind of like chew on a Subway sandwich on the side, but doesn't actually get a chair, <laughs> um, you know, whose voice or voices matter in these moments, um, whose do you kind of dial back? can this be a jumping off point of, you know, isn't it interesting? Everyone else in the room thinks you should stay and yet you want to go or vice versa. Um, and I think that decision, decision-making is also a skill. <laughs> so since we're talking about mastery, I mean, how many decisions have you made in your life? A lot, right? You probably decided whether to put a left and a right shoe on this morning, what color you were going to wear, whether you were going to get up on time or press snooze four times, right? I mean, you made lots of decisions and yet this one might feel large. And so, you know, how do you make decisions? Who taught you? Were decisions over or underemphasized, right? Was every time you made a decision, it was a big deal or did nobody really notice when you made decisions? So, how, you know, how have you been positively reinforced or, kind of molded um, what emotions come with making your decision, what gets in the way. So I think that that's important. Um, now, the second part of your question, right? What happens when the career ends because of things you can't control? I think it's uncomfortable. <laughs> and, and for some, it's emotionally dysregulating if it ends abruptly. I mean, you mentioned the pandemic. And for some folks, that was like, you know, you're, you're not getting an end to your career. It, it, it just ended with the CDC, you know, um, and, and you can't call up the CDC and say, well, can you please postpone, mm-hmm. right? This doesn't work. Um, so I do think there's a certain amount of, of radical acceptance that's required of you. Um, you cannot and will not ever be in control of all things at all times. Um, the world keeps spinning on its axis, whether you want it to or not. You know, younger dancers are going to get hired. Other people are going to achieve success. So to me, and I guess this is perhaps a little bit of the motivational interviewing uh, that I use as a practitioner is, you know, you have a choice. How, how do you want to spend your moments remaining in dance? Do you want to be focused on perceived threats or do you want to focus on your progress? Um you know, which hopefully your, you know, those process goals can lead to, to performance and outcome goals being breached. Um, but I think it is important to think about how much rental space it's taking up in your head of trying to walk around with a, a you know, a fire extinguisher, putting out all the fires as opposed to saying at the moment, right, I, I have my body and I, and I have a flat surface, so I'm going to dance. Um, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to minimize it or distill it into such simple that it invalidates what's going on. Um, I, I do think, though, that talking to the emotions and walking through the logic piece of that, um, I think, can be valuable. Um, things are going to happen that are out of your control. So to feel that your career is ending for things that weren't your fault or weren't things that you could have foreseen, that's that's what it is to be human. Um, right. We, we, we cannot possibly control it all. We don't have the, the light board of our own lives in front of us that, you know, maneuvers every other little thing. Um, I guess my anecdote here, 
um, you know, all of us pivot at some point. Uh, today, I I picked up a stroller from another mom's house so we could use it for our family vacation this summer. And I got turned around in a place I, I thought I knew how to navigate. Uh, Google Maps was showing green all the way and, you know, all the roads were highlighted. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got lost. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I could have parked my car, gotten out, cried, you know, waited for someone to come along. But I might be there for a while. You know, I, I might have made things worse. I could have parked on private property. Uh, I just finished my my Yeti. So at some point I was going to have to pee. Uh, probably going to be late to work, maybe to this podcast, right? Or I can come back to the facts, right? The things that that are in my control, right? There are roads. I have a car with four wheels and gas, right? I have the physical and the vocal abilities and privileges to roll down my window and ask the next person I see for help. Um, so I think it's reminding yourself that while the circumstances around you may be contributing to the end of your career, that you still have agency within it. And I think that that's a really important distinction to make, that it it can't be that it's all on you and it can't be that it's all the world's fault. There's probably some sort of middle ground there that is just not comfortable to accept. Mm-hmm. And a little more complex to have to work through. For sure. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you've you used the term um, radical acceptance a couple times. Do you want to just, I think we hear that and we kind of know generally what that means. Um, but do you want to, do you want to just take a moment to define it a little more? <laughs> uh, well, it's a bit of an, an, uh, a tip of the hat to a former guest you had, uh, Miriam Rowan, who very skilled DBT clinician, uh, and actually a, a friend and colleague of mine uh, presently. And, you know, for me, it's something that I've continued to learn as a clinician. I, I am not um, a DBT trained clinician. I, I see value in the skills and in the approach. Um, to me, it's it's the idea that um, when people say things are the way that they are, that there there's truth behind that. And at the same time, right, how, how do you play a role in it? And so for me, the radical acceptance is um, that, you know, if, if somebody says to me, you know, the sky is blue, and I say, no, it's not, right, the, the, the sky is yellow, <laughs> you know, that, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't really matter what my perception of it is, if in fact, the sky is blue, and I'm kind of creating my own version of the world and perhaps my own suffering or my own stuckness by refusing to participate in the world the way that it is, which is that the sky is in fact blue because it's right a reflection of the ocean. You know, um, you know, to me again it's that it's that balance of there are some things in life that we we do work to accept it and the acceptance does not mean we approve of it. Um, and yet Right. If you continue to just kind of run up against it, like someone trying to run through a wall, I mean, unless you are Harry Potter on platform nine and three quarters, it's not going to go very well for you. And so how can you kind of stop running into the wall, sit down and think, you know, why am I running at this wall? Um, what is it getting me? How is it validating me? How is it keeping me with, you know, what I'm currently trying to achieve? And, and how is it not? How is it actually hindering my progress? And I'm curious about other ways that I could approach this or other people I could bring with me to get through this wall. Um, so I, 
that's where I'll leave it. Okay. <laughs> um, Great. Um, for now, yeah. And for and for those who don't know, DBT is dialectical or dialectic oh, I'm behavior sorry. therapy, yes. right? Yeah, dialectical yeah. behavior therapy. Yep. Um, yeah, Marsha Linehan is the name that you want to know there, and there are specific clinicians who are very well trained in this um, type of therapy modality approach um, that can speak more to this. However, you know, as I mentioned, I, I very much respect it. Um, I think that there's a lot to be gained from the very practical, the practicality of it and how um, some of the different skills that are taught within a DBT framework are highly transferable to athletes when it comes to emotion regulation and mindfulness and um, just can be really, really powerful. Um, you know, Ellie, I, I think you had asked earlier a little bit about um, you know, f- that for much of, of young people's lives, um, you know, that they've been very much in, in control of their body, their minds, and their emotions. I think that um, DBT lends itself very well to that. Yeah, let's, let's talk more about that. Um, yeah, in many different forms, dance training often begins quite young. Um, so, yeah, what is it to, like, achieve mastery at such a young age. I used to, I would teach at the American Ballet Theater summer intensive and see these little 12 year olds who were just like so focused and they just spent all day working on their ballet training. And, you know, I was one of those kids. I get it. Like, and I would, I just look at them and think like, you know, other kids are like just at like, I don't know, camp. I don't honestly know what happens at other camp because I never went. I always went to ballet camp too, but I think they just play. And, you know, (laughs) and I used Mm -hmm. to say, you know, these 12 year olds are kind of like work digging in deeper than, than some people ever do at anything in life, even in adulthood. Um, so like going back to that beginner's mind idea and having to like reset start something new I mean even though we we agree that there are these transferable skills it's still beginning again and that could be potentially a really unfamiliar situation um, for a dancer who has maybe even had a professional career starting at 12. We we sort of touched on this earlier but Mm -hmm. what is the value in going back to that beginner's mind? Sure. Well, I mean, a beginner's mind, you know, in and of itself, um, I, I love Suzuki has a, has a quote, uh, in the, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities in the experts. There are few. Um, and so I, I kind of do like it when we were talking earlier about like heuristics or tunnel vision, right? When you become an expert at something, um, there's a lot to be gained, right? In terms of wisdom and expertise and accolades and confidence. And yet, right, there are other things that kind of go out the window. Um, the concept of beginner's mind has been around for a very long time and, and I, I'm not going to do it justice, but I, I will attempt it. You know, I encourage your listeners to seek out the writings of those with more experience than me. I mean, certainly from a philosophical lens, like John Kabat-Zinn has some great stuff as far as clinical treatment. Uh, Marsha Linehan, um, Jamie Marich has a dancing mindfulness course. Um, there are some mindfulness and performance experts, um, Sam Zizzi, Mark Anderson, Keith Kaufman. Um, 
I think even it was Dance Teacher had an article back in 20, uh, October 2020, Catherine Drury talked about, uh, you know, some practical strategies. And then there's a website, Bulletproof Musician, um, uh, uh, consultant at Juilliard, who talks a lot about using this in, in music spaces. And of course, the countless apps, right? Headspace, Calm, Pacifica, you know, the VA, like they all have these things that kind of talk about beginner's mind or mindfulness. But for me, from a 30,000 foot view, it, it comes down to your conscious choice to remain open to new ideas and approaches and actively acknowledging and putting down your judgments or your preconceived notions about a task. And like you were saying, Elliot, <laughs> summer camp, like re-engaging in the fun, the play, the joy, the exploration of that task and of your very being. The concept of a beginner's mind in a consulting capacity is getting curious about how a dancer or other performer has come to be stuck. Um, whether it's that they're stuck in their own emotional experience, they're stuck in their career, they're stuck with a specific movement like the lost skill or the yips. Um, going back to the very beginning, almost like being in couples therapy with your point shoes. Like what was it like to first do a plie? What was it like to land that double turn? How do you know that dance is a joyful experience? What does it feel like in your brain, in your body? When was the last time you felt it? Um, beginner's mind gives us this permission or kind of directs us to strip ourselves of the labels of what we could do or should do and just what is, right? I am a body dancing. Um, you know, kind of coming back to this concept of human being before human doing, or in this case, human dancing. So I think it allows us to simplify our processes, our events that we've sometimes made too complex in our heads and kind of open some new windows and doors to understanding our intentions and our expectations and um, really kind of get back to the creativity and believe it or not, optimal performance um, when you can kind of get out of your own way <laughs> um, because uh, you know a lot of what sports science tells us is that you can't initiate flow right you can't go on stage and say this is going to be my optimal performance it doesn't work like that um, you have to get out of your own way to a certain extent in order to to be that kind of best version of, of the performer that you can be so I think when folks are going through this major transition, it is going to be a lot of practicing mindfulness. And I'm not saying that you have to like meditate all the time. Mindfulness can be a very um, structured practice, but it does not have to be. It can be an intention or a way of living, even if it's just for the two minutes that you brush your teeth. Um, I think it means listening to corrections authentically without interpreting them further. If you're, you know, if your teacher is saying, you know, I'd like for you to lift your rib cage, they didn't say lose five pounds. They didn't say, right, you look depressed. They didn't say, I hate your, your leotard. <laughs> they said, lift your rib cage. <laughs> um, so I think that that then applies when you're leaving um, dance into other vocations, right? If somebody says, hey, could you do this faster next time, right? You might have some follow-up questions like how and to whom, but it doesn't say you don't belong here, which I think is something that a dancer might hear in those first few weeks, months, years in a new profession. 
Um, I think it teaches us to be like water. Um, and that's a bit of an ode to my graduate training. We talked about this a lot, be like water, right? That you, you know your essence, you know your kind of genuine being, and yet you're constantly adapting and molding to, to things that are occurring around you. And so you don't resist it, right? You kind of find a way through it. Um, I think journaling, as I mentioned earlier, becoming familiar with your patterns and of thoughts and behavior, um, ask yourself if those patterns are still helpful to you. Um, I think that those all really matter as well. That's great. I think, I think in closing, you know, you just provided a lot of good, thoughtful tools, um, in terms of the mindfulness and the journaling and stuff. I'm just wondering if in a final remark, if you want to leave us with any other, like leaving dance first aid, you know, it can be such a, like, (laughs) it can really feel a bit like being lost at sea, you know, what are the anchors or what, what is the, what are in your metaphor going back to the bowling, you know, what are the bumpers, you know, you want to have in place as you make this begin this journey? What's in your toolkit? Sure. Well, when you say being lost at sea and anchors, I do think about, um, you know, a ship and I think about the rudder, on the ship, um, you know, I, th- I think about values and morals and goals, right? The thing I know kind of drive us in a way that, I mean, emotions don't last long. Emotions last like a minute, right? We either kind of press refresh or we move to the next one or the next intensity. So for me, the things that tend to be a little longer lasting are those values and morals, right? Our kind of internal code of conduct and kind of how we let those out. And you know, whether you believe that you're, you're having those at birth or that you develop them over time or some combination thereof, I think, you know, they are the truest to our identities in that they're very hard to, they're very hard to change um, without some major life experience. And so I, I do think that coming back to values, morals, and goals are important and giving some direction to your life and how can you continue to use those as a, as a guide. I think a support system is critical um, in the work that I've done, especially with injured athletes, the, the pieces, the people around you. And it's, it's less about um, the quantity of people around you and more so the quality and your perception of whether those people are helpful. Um, uh, my um, former advisor, uh, Dr. Damien Clement um, does writing on this and it, I think it's very important is that, you know, sometimes you just have one person in your corner and yet that person can provide you with that emotional and informational and tangible support that you need as opposed to having, you know, 17,000 followers on Instagram and Snapchat and yet none of them check in. So I think a support system, whether that's chosen family, biological family, um, both other mentors in and outside of dance, friends in and outside of dance, your faith, your spirituality, community leaders, your healthcare providers. I do think, you know, being on the side of, you know, healthcare, mental health care and consulting, it's sometimes kind of viewed that like we stop caring <laughs> if you're no longer that. We, you know, we signed up to take care of the person, um, not necessarily the person who got 
you know, X amount of money or X amount of accolades. So I think the healthcare providers and asking them to help with your continuity of care and transition of care is very important. Um, I want to give everybody permission to not know where you're headed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes it's important to, you know, kind of get lost before you are found. And yet, right at what's that thing that's on, on like everybody's desktop, right? Like not all who, not all those who wander are lost. Right, right. Think, right. There's some truth in that, a willingness to try things. Um, you don't have to know where you're headed. Sometimes to know where you're going, you have to kind of, weed out the things you know you're not going to do. And another reminder that therapy is not for the weak and the wounded and the broken ill people. It is for everybody. It It is self-insight. It's reflection. It's understanding. It's somebody or a group of people giving you unconditional positive regard while also challenging you. Um, you know, I don't think that therapy should feel like you know, a spa. (laughs) I really don't. Um, I think that that's important. Therapy is not for everyone either. Um, And so it does not have to be the answer to, um, you know, mental distress for every single person. I think that, you know, recognizing your willingness to participate, what you want to get out of it, and when is the right time with an appropriate provider. Um, Outside of, you know, professional help, I think leaning on life routines and habits that give you a sense of rhythm, a sense of that competence and confidence we've spoken about, whether it's what time you get up in the morning, who you connect with, how you feel your body, who you allow into your mind, um, social media, TV, others' opinions. um, Use your resources. There are lots of wonderful nonprofit and advocacy organizations, um, folks who want to help you secure employment, walk you through transitions, give you grants and scholarships. Um, to find your way. So I think going after the things that are set up for you, do not feel or do not think that you are a burden in that capacity. In fact, like you are the reason that those resources were created. And so the more that you use them, right, the, the more that they can continue to exist and be funded for other people. That was wonderful. Thank you so much um, for, you know, hitting the tip of the iceberg here on the <laughs> the big old experience of changing your relationship to dance that so many people experience. Um, Lee, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you again for having me. It's been a pleasure as well, Ellie. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dance Well Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to DanceWell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a donation, to dance well, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website, www.dancewellpodcast.com. 
And if you have any questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.